Section 26 of Lucretia Borgia by Ferdinand Gregorovius. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Emily Maynard. Book 2, Chapter 4, The Este Dynasty, Description of Ferrara. On entering the castle of the Este, Lucretia found a new environment, new interests, one might almost say a new world. She was a princess in one of the most important Italian states, and in a strange city, which, during the latter half of the century, had assumed a place of the first importance, for the spirit of Italian culture had there developed new forms. She had been received with the highest honors into a family famous and princely, one of the oldest and most brilliant in the peninsula. It was a piece of supreme good fortune that had brought her to this house, and now she would endeavor to make herself worthy of it. The family of Este, next to that of Savoy, was the oldest and most illustrious in Italy, and it forced the latter into the background by assuming the important position which the state of Ferrara, owing to its geographical position, afforded it. The history of the Este is briefly as follows. These lords, whose name is derived from a small castle between Padua and Ferrara, and who first appeared about the time of the Lombard invasion, were descended from a family whose remote ancestor was one Albert. The names Adalbert and Albert assume in Italian the form Oberto, from which we have the diminutives of Obizzo and Adzo. In the 10th century there appears a Marquis Oberto, who was first a retainer of King Berengar and later of Otto the Great. It is not known from what domain he and his immediate successor derived their title of Marquis. They were, however, powerful lords in Lombardy as well as in Tuscany. One of Oberto's ancestors, Alberto Azzo II, who was originally mentioned as Marchio di Longobardia, governed the territory from Mantua to the Adriatic and the region about the Po, where he owned Este and Rovigo. He married Cunigunde, sister of Count Guelph III of Swabia, and in this way the famous German family of Guelph became connected with the Oberti and drawn into Italian politics. When Alberto Azzo died in the year 1096, more than a hundred years old, he left two sons, Guelph and Folco, who were the founders of the House of Este in Italy and the Guelph House of Braunschweig in Germany. For Guelph inherited the property of his maternal grandfather, Guelph III, in whom the male line of the house became extinct in the year 1055. He went to Germany, where he became Duke of Bavaria and founded the Guelph line. Folco inherited his father's Italian possessions, and in the great struggle of the German emperor with the papacy, the Margraves of Este were aggressive and determined soldiers. At first they were simply members of the Guelph faction, but subsequently they became its leaders, and thus were able to establish their power in Ferrara. The origin of the city is lost in the midst of antiquity. By the gift of Pippin and Charles it passed to the church. It was also included in the deed of Matilda. In the war between the Pope and the Emperor, occasioned by this gift of Matilda, Ferrara succeeded in regaining its independence as a republic. The Este first appeared there about the end of the twelfth century. Folco's grandson, Azzo V, married Marchesele Adelardi, who was the heir of the leader of the Guelphs in that city, where Salinguera was head of the Ghibellines. From that time the Margraves of Este possessed great influence in Ferrara. They were likewise leaders of the Guelph party in the north of Italy. 
In the year 1208, Azzo VI succeeded in driving Salinguera out of Ferrara, and the city, having wearied of the long feud, made the victor its hereditary podesta. This is the first example of a free republic voluntarily submitting to a lord. In this way, the Este established the first tyranny on the ruins of a commune. The brave Salinguera, one of the greatest captains of Italy in the time of the Hohenstaufen, repeatedly drove Azzo VI and his successor Azzo VII from Ferrara, but he himself was finally defeated in 1240 and cast into prison where he died. Thenceforth the Este ruled Ferrara. About the time of the removal of the papacy to Avignon, they were expelled from the city by the church, but they returned on the invitation of the citizens who had risen against the papal legate. John the Twenty-Second issued a diploma of investiture by the terms of which they were to hold Ferrara as a fief of the church on payment of an annual tribute of ten thousand gold ducats. The Este now set themselves up as tyrants in Ferrara, and in spite of numerous wars maintained the dynasty for a great many years. This dominion was not, like that in many other Italian states, due to a lucky stroke on the part of an upstart, but it was ancient, hereditary, and firmly established. It was due to a succession of remarkable princes, beginning with Aldobrandino, Lord of Ferrara, Modena, Rovigo, and Comacchio, that Ferrara succeeded in winning the important position she held at the beginning of the 16th century. Aldo Brandino was followed by his brothers, Niccolò, from 1361 to 1388, and Alberto until 1393. After that, his son Niccolò III, a powerful and bellicose man, ruled until the year 1441. As his legitimate children, Ercole and Sigismondo, were minors, he was succeeded by his natural son, Lionello. This prince not only continued the work begun by his father, but also beautified Ferrara. In the year 1444, the great Alfonso of Naples gave him his daughter Maria as wife, and the Este thus entered into close relations with the royal house of Aragon. Leonello was intelligent and liberal, a patron of all the arts and sciences, a, quote, prince of immortal name. In the year 1450, he was succeeded by his brother Borso, illegitimate like himself, as an effort was being made to displace the legitimate sons of Niccolò II. Borso was one of the most magnificent princes of his age. Frederick II, when he stopped in Ferrara on his return from his coronation in Rome, made him Duke of Modena and Reggio, and Count of Rovigo and Comacchio, all of which territories belonged to the empire. The Este thereupon adopted for their arms, instead of the white eagle they had hitherto borne, the black eagle of the empire, to which were added the lilies of France, the use of which had been granted them by Charles the Seventh. April 14, 1471, Paul the Seventh in Rome created Borso, Duke of Ferrara. Soon after this, May 27th, this celebrated prince died unmarried and childless. He was succeeded by Ercole, the legitimate son of Niccolò II, the direct line of the Este, thereby reacquiring the government of Ferrara, the importance of the state having been greatly increased by the efforts of the two illegitimate sons. In June 1473, amid magnificent festivities, Ercole married Eleonora of Aragon, daughter of Ferdinand of Naples. 
Twenty-nine years, years of conflict, had passed when the second Duke of Ferrara married his son to Lucretia with similar pomp. By putting an end to the war with Venice and Pope Sixtus IV in the year 1482, Ercole had succeeded in saving his state from the great danger which threatened it, although he had been forced to relinquish certain territory to the Venetians. This danger, however, might arise again, for Venice and the Pope continued to be Ferrara's bitterest enemies. Political considerations, therefore, compelled her to form an alliance with France, whose king already owned Milan and might permanently secure possession of Naples. For the same reason, he had married his son to Lucretia on the best terms he was able to make. She, therefore, must have been conscious of her great importance to the state of Ferrara, and this it was which gave her a sense of security with regard to the noble house to which she now belonged. The duke presented the young couple Castelvecchio for the residence, and there Lucretia established her court. This stronghold, which is still in existence, is one of the most imposing monuments of the Middle Ages. It overlooks all Ferrara and may be seen for miles around. Its dark red color, its gloominess, which is partly due to its architectural severity, its four mighty towers, all combine to cause a feeling of fear, especially on moonlit nights, when the shadows of the towers fall on the water in the moat, which still surrounds the castle as in days of old. The figures of the great ones who once lived in the stronghold, Ugo at Parisina Malatesta, Borso, Lucretia Borgia and Alfonso, René of France, and Calvin, Ariosto, Alfonso II, the unfortunate Tasso and Eleonora, seem to rise before the beholder. The Marchese Niccolò, owing to an uprising of the citizens, began Castelvecchio in the year 1385, and his successor completed it and decorated the interior. It is connected by covered passageways with a palace opposite the church. Before Ercole extended Ferrara on the north, the castle marked the boundary of the city. One of the towers, called the Tower of the Lions, protected the city gate. A branch of the Po, which at that time flowed nearby, supplied the moat, over which there were several drawbridges, with water. In Lucretia's time, the only main features of the stronghold were the same as they are now. The cornices of the towers are of a later date, and the towers themselves were somewhat lower. The walls were embattled like those of the Gonzaga castle in Mantua. Cannons, cast under the direction of Alfonso, were placed at various points. There is an interior quadrangular court with arcades, and there Lucretia was shown the place where Niccolò II had caused his son Ugo and his stepmother, the beautiful Parisina, to be beheaded. This gruesome deed was a warning to Alexander's daughter to be true to her husband. A wide marble stairway led to the two upper stories of the castle, one of which, the lower, consisting of a series of chambers and salons, was set aside for the princes. In the course of time, this has suffered so many changes that even those most thoroughly acquainted with Ferrara do not know just where Lucretia's apartments were. Very few of the paintings with which the Este adorned the castle are left. There are still some frescoes by Dossi and another unknown master. The castle was always a gloomy and oppressive residence. It was in perfect accord with the character of Ferrara, which even now is forbidding. Standing on the battlements and looking across the broad, highly cultivated but monotonous fields, whose horizon is not attractive because the Veronese Alps are too far distant, 
and the Apennines, which are closer, are not clearly defined. And gazing down upon the black mass of the city itself, one wonders how Ariosto's exuberant creation could have been produced here. Greater inspiration would be found in the sky, the land, and the sea of the idyllic Sorrento, which was Tasso's birthplace. But this is only another proof of the theory that the poet's fancy is independent of his environment. Ferrara is situated in an unhealthful plain, which is traversed by a branch of the Po and several canals. The principal stream does not contribute to the life of the city or its suburbs, as it is several miles distant. The town is surrounded by strong walls in which are four gates. In addition to Castle Vecchio on the north, there was, in Lucretia's time, another at the southwest, Castle Tealto or Tedaldo, which was situated on one of the branches of the Po, and which had a gate opening into the city and a pontoon bridge connecting it with the suburb San Giorgio. Lucretia had entered by this gate. Nothing is now left of Castle Tedaldo, as it was raised at the beginning of the seventeenth century, when the Pope, having driven out Alfonso's successors, erected the new fortress. Ferrara has a large public square and regular streets with arcades. The church, which faces the principal piazza, and which was consecrated in the year 1135, is an imposing structure in the Lombardo-Gothic style. Its high facade is divided in three parts and gabled, and it has three rows of half-Roman and half-Gothic arches supported on columns. With its ancient sculptures, black with time, it presents a strange appearance of medieval originality and romance. In Ferrara there is now nothing else so impressive on first sight as this church. It seems as if one of the structures of Ariosto's fairy world had suddenly risen before us. Opposite one side of the castle, the Palazzo del Ragione, is still standing, and there are also two old towers, one of which is called the Rigobello. Opposite the façade was the Este Palace, in which Ercole lived, and which Eugene IV occupied when he held the famous council in Ferrara. In front of it rose the monuments of the two great princes of the House of Este, Niccolò III and Borso. One is an equestrian statue, the other a sitting figure. Both were placed upon columns, and therefore are small. The crumbling pillars by the entrance archway are still standing, but the statues were destroyed in 1796. The Este vied with the other princes and republics in building churches and convents, of which Ferrara still possesses a large number. In the year 1500, the most important were San Domenico, San Francesco, Santa Maria in Vado, Sant'Antonio, San Giorgio before the Porta Romana, the convent Corpus Domini, and the Certosa. All have been restored, more or less, and although some of them are roomy and beautiful, none have any special artistic individuality. As early as the 15th century, there were numerous palaces in Ferrara, which are still numbered among the attractions of the gloomy city, and which are regarded as important structures in the history of architecture, from the early Renaissance until the appearance of the Rococo style. Many of them, however, are in a deplorable state of decay. Marchese Alberto built the Palazzo del Paradiso, now the university, and Schifanoia at the end of the 16th century. Ercole erected the Palazzo Pareschi. He also restored a large part of Ferrara and extended the city by adding a new quarter on the north, the Adizione Erculea, which is still the handsomest part of Ferrara. The city is traversed by two long, wide streets, 
the Corso di Porta Po, with its continuation, the Corso di Porta Mare, and the Strada dei Pioponi. Strolling through these quiet streets, one is astonished at the long rows of beautiful palaces of the Renaissance, reminders of a teeming life now passed away. Ercole laid out a large square which is surrounded by noble palaces and which is now known as the Piazza Ariostea, from the monument of the great poet which stands in the center. This is, doubtless, the most beautiful memorial ever erected to a poet. The marble statue stands upon a high column and looks down upon the entire city. The history of the monument is interesting. Originally, it was intended that an equestrian statue of Ercole on two columns should occupy this position. When the columns were being brought down the Po on a raft, one of them rolled overboard and was lost. The other was used in the year 1675 to support the statue of Pope Alexander Seventh, which was pulled down during the Revolution of 1796 and replaced with a Statue of Liberty, the unveiling of which was attended by General Napoleon Bonaparte. Three years later, the Austrians overthrew the Statue of Liberty, leaving the column standing, and in the year 1810 a statue of the Emperor Napoleon was placed upon it. This fell with the Emperor. In the year 1833, Ferrara set Ariosto's statue upon the column, where it will remain in spite of all political change. Magnificent palaces rose in Ercole's new suburb. His brother, Sigismondo, erected the splendid Palazzo Diamanti, now Ferrara's art gallery, while the Trotti, Castelli, Sacrati, and Bevilacqua families built palaces there which are still in existence. Ferrara was the home of a wealthy nobility, some of whom belonged to the old baronial families. In addition, there were the Contrari, Pio, Costabili, the Strozzi, Saraceni, Boschetti, the Roverella, the Muzzarelli, and Pendalia. The Ferrarese aristocracy had long ago emerged from the state of municipal strife and feudal dependence and had set up their courts. The Este, especially, the warlike Niccolò III, had subjugated the barons who originally lived upon their estates beyond the city walls and who were now in the service of the ruling family, holding the most important court and city offices. They were also commanders in the army. They took part, probably more actively than did the nobility of the other Italian states, in the intellectual movement of the age, which was fostered by the princes of the House of Este. Consequently, many of these great lords won prominent places in the history of literature in Ferrara. The university, which had flourished there since the middle of the 15th century, was, excepting those of Padua and Bologna, the most famous in Italy. Founded by the Margrave Alberto in 1391, and subsequently remodeled by Niccolò III, it reached the zenith of its fame in the time of Lionello and Borso. The former was a pupil of the celebrated Guarino of Verona, and was himself acquainted with all the sciences. The friend and idol of the humanists of his age, he collected rare manuscripts and disseminated copies of them. He founded the library, and Borso continued the work begun by him. As early as 1474, the University of Ferrara had 45 well-paid professors, and Ercole increased their number. Printing was introduced during his reign. The earliest printer in Ferrara after 1471 was the Frenchman Andreas, called Belfort. Like the city, the people seemed to have been of a serious cast of mind, which led to speculation, criticism, and the cultivation of the exact sciences. From Ferrara came Savonarola, 
the fanatical prophet who appeared during the moral blight which characterized the age of the Borgias, and Lucretia must frequently have recalled this man in whom her father, by the executioner's hand, sought to stifle the protestations of the faithful and upright against the immorality of his rule. Astronomy and mathematics, and especially the natural sciences and medicine, which at that time were part of the school of philosophy, were extensively cultivated in Ferrara. It is stated that Savonarola himself had studied medicine. His grandfather Michele, a famous physician of Padua, had been called to Ferrara by Niccolò II. Niccolò Leoniceno, a native of Vicenza, at whose feet many of the most famous scholars and poets had sat, enjoyed great renown in Ferrara about 1464 as a physician, mathematician, philosopher, and philologist. He was still the pride of the city when Lucretia arrived there, as the great mathematician Domenico Maria Novara was then teaching in Bologna, where Copernicus had been his pupil. Many famous humanists, who at the time of Lucretia's arrival were still children or youths, for example the Giraldi and genial Celio Calcanini, who dedicated an epithalamium to her on her appearance in the city, were members of the Ferrarese University. All of these men were welcome at the court of the Este because they were accomplished and versatile. It was not until later, after the sciences had been classified and their boundaries defined, that the graceful learning of the humanists degenerated into pedantry. It was, however, especially the art of poetry, which gave Ferrara in Lucretia's time a peculiarly romantic cast. This it was which first attracted attention to the city as one of the main centers of the intellectual movement. Ferrara produced numerous poets who composed in both tongues, Latin and Italian. Almost all the scholars of the day wrote Latin verses. Most of them, however, it must be admitted, were lacking in poetic fire. Some of the Ferraresi, however, rose to high positions in poetry and are still remembered. Preeminent were the two Strozzi, father and son, and Antonia Tabaldeo. The poets, however, who originated the romantic epic in Italian were much more important than the writers of Latin verse. The brilliant and sensuous court of Ferrara, together with the fascinating romance of the House of Este, which really belongs to the Middle Ages, and the charming nobility and modern chivalry, all contributed to the production of the epic, while the city of Ferrara, with its eventful history and its striking style of architecture, was a most favorable soil for it. Monuments of Roman antiquity are as rare in Ferrara as they are in Florence. Everything is of the Middle Ages. Lucretia did not meet Boiardo, the famous author of the Orlando Innamorato, at the court of his friend Ercole, but the blind singer of the Mambriano, Francesco Cecco, probably was still living. We have seen how Ariosto, who was soon to eclipse all his predecessors, greeted Lucretia on her arrival. The graphic arts had made much less progress in Ferrara than had poetry and the sciences, but while no master of the first rank, no Raphael or Titian appeared, there were, nevertheless, some who won a not unimportant place in the history of Italian culture. The Este were patrons of painting. They had their palaces decorated with frescoes, some of which, still considered noteworthy on account of their originality, are preserved in the Palazzo Schifanoia, where they were rediscovered in the year 1840. About the middle of the 15th century, Ferrara had its own school, the chief of which was Cosimo Tura. It produced two remarkable painters, Dosso Dossi and Benvenuto Tizio, the latter of whom, under the name of Garofalo, became famous as one of Raphael's greatest pupils. 
the works of these artists, who were Lucretia's contemporaries, Garofalo being a year younger, still adorn many of the churches and are the chief attractions in the galleries of the city. Such, broadly sketched, was the intellectual life of Ferrara in the year 1502. We therefore see that in addition to her brilliant court and her political importance as the capital of the state, she possessed a highly developed spiritual life. The chroniclers state that her population at that time numbered a hundred thousand souls, and at the beginning of the sixteenth century, her most flourishing period, she was probably more populous than Rome. In addition to the nobility, there was an active bourgeoisie engaged in commerce and manufacturing, especially weaving, who enjoyed life. End of chapter 4